Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. I met Tammy um, on several occasions, and the side of Tammy that I saw was very polished, very poised, very smooth. Um, but there was something else going on behind that uh, that I never saw. Uh, only learned about ex post facto. When she vanished in 1983, I thought for sure we'll hear from her again, but it was as if she had just dissipated into thin air. I was always reading about things like serial killers, things that would creep other people out, uh, trying to figure out how are these people different because, you know, I'm inside my own head and I can never imagine doing the things that some of these other people would do. Now the rumor has it, the proverbial word on the street, is that if they had dug up the yard the first time they were there, because they had no reason to dig up the yard because there wouldn't be any evidence of a rape in the yard. But if they had dug up the yard, they would have got a, a, a head. We now interrupt your regularly scheduled podcast for this special report. Well, maybe not exactly, but I've always wanted to say that. Hey, everybody, I'm John Torres, and this is a special three-part, um, let's call it a three-part intermission of Murder on the Space Coast. While I'm hard at work reporting for season six of Murder on the Space Coast, I thought it would be the perfect time to look into a pair of stories that many of you, my listeners, and even my coworkers, have asked me to feature on the podcast. Since both stories take place during the same time period, and there is a slight chance that both stories are related, I figured I would tackle them together. But I also wanted to look at something else. I wanted to explore our society's perhaps morbid fascination with true crime and murder. I mean, a glance at the TV listings and you'll see what I mean. If it's not Dateline or 48 Hours, then it's American Crime Story or The Tiger King making a murderer. Cold Case Files, Unsolved Mysteries, The FBI Files, Homicide Hunter, and it goes on and on and on. A look at the most popular podcasts tells a similar story. Why are we so fascinated with crime and murder? Well, the why answer might just go into the heart of why we are combining two stories into a mini three-episode season. You see, when we started Murder on the Space Coast, our goal was to do investigative journalism that can prompt change or at the very least, shine a fresh light on cases that some might prefer stay covered. And to a point we've been very successful. I mean, both the subjects of season one and four, Gary Bennett and Jeff Abramowski, respectively, have new hope as lawyers have learned of their cases because of the podcast and have taken them on. The season three Brandy Hall case sparked the interest of a private investigator who restarted his own inquiry into what happened to the young mother of three. 
His work has been so impressive that the Palm Bay police have renewed efforts to find Brandy's remains. The reporting and the researching that goes into these projects is lengthy and time-consuming, and sometimes it's mentally draining. So that's why it felt like the right time to take a pause, a short pause, and pursue a couple of stories that are more self-contained. Stories that aren't quite the investigative deep dives of the kind that you're used to hearing on Murder on the Space Coast. But that doesn't mean they aren't important in their own way. So here we go. Many of you have asked me about the vampire rapist case, and the mystery of a young local actress who had a role in Al Pacino's Scarface before she went missing from Cocoa Beach in 1983. So I started researching John B. Crutchley, a.k.a. the vampire rapist, and Tammy Lynn Leppert, the beauty queen who went missing. I initially thought I was looking into two separate stories, but lo and behold, Tammy's name pops up while I'm reading a book about John Crutchley. He's also mentioned as a possible suspect on numerous websites about Tammy, and even in Florida Today articles. So we thought it was certainly worthwhile to look at this connection and see if there was anything to it. And of course, as we weighed into these cases, we figured why not take the time to explore this obsession, this fascination with murder, especially when we're talking about true crime in our own backyard. Basically, we are a group mainly composed of women, although we have a few men, um, who are fascinated with murder, who most of us have had a true crime fetish, if you will, many of us since childhood. I started at about age seven with my grandmother uh, finding horrific stories every day in the New York City newspapers. And we lived way far away up north in Rome, New York. But she, my grandma was obsessed with murder. That was Paula Roller Irion, who belongs to a local Facebook group called Murderinos of Brevard County. They invited me to come speak at one of their monthly gatherings after they discovered the Murder on the Space Coast podcast. I have since been made an honorary member of the group and gone back to speak with them again. You'll be hearing more from the group over the next two episodes. If you're wondering where the term murderino comes from, it basically refers to fans and followers of the podcast My Favorite Murder. And just all things true crime. Okay, so back to the true crime. The first thing we need to do is learn a little bit about a man with a very high IQ who had top-secret clearance with the U.S. Navy, who was hired by Harris Corporation in Palm Bay in 1983, and who may very well have been one of the most cunning serial killers ever. I say cunning and may have been because nothing was ever proven. A word of warning, this episode contains sexual and violent themes, as well as adult language. It's not intended for children, nor the sensitive or easily offended. If that's you, stop listening now. John Brennan Crutchley was born October 1st, 1946 in Pittsburgh to a mother who was so distraught that he wasn't born a girl that she dressed him in girl clothing and raised him as a girl for the first five years of his life. You see, Crutchley's older sister had died before he was born in a bizarre sex-related accident. By all accounts, Crutchley had a strange, loveless childhood and did not do well at school despite having the high IQ. But he did get an engineering degree And then in the early to mid-70s, armed with that degree, Crutchley worked in the Washington, D.C. area. Already married and divorced by 1977, the 31-year-old Crutchley was working for Logicon in Reston, Virginia, when a 25-year-old woman he was dating, Debbie Fitzjohn, went missing. In fact, Debbie Fitzjohn went missing on the same night that she had gone to Crutchley's trailer to hang out. Her skeletal remains were found roughly one year later by hunters. 
Crutchley was the prime suspect in the case, but detectives never found enough evidence that tied him to the crime. From 1979 to 1983, Crutchley worked for several defense contractors in the nation's capital, where he had access to the Norfolk Naval Air Station. In early 1982, a 23-year-old Navy messenger, Pamela Ann Kimbrew, was murdered. Her body was found in her submerged car at the end of a seaplane ramp. Her hands had been tied behind her, and she had been strangled with a clothesline. Eleven months later, a 21-year-old Navy clerk, Carol Ann Molinar, went missing. Her remains were found three months later under rocks of a seawall at the naval base. She, too, had been strangled. Molinar was murdered in February of 83. One month later, Crutchley was hired by the Harris Corporation in Palm Bay. And by June 1st, he was already settled in a big house in Malabar with his new wife and their young child. He was now 37 years old. Hey, if you like what we do here with our free Murder on the Space Coast podcast, then please consider supporting us with a digital subscription to Florida Today. The cost for a month is seriously what you would pay for a premium cup of coffee. Help us keep doing what we do. Go to floridatoday.com backslash subscribe. Meanwhile, here in Brevard County, there was a young girl making a name for herself winning beauty pageants, gracing the pages of magazines, and even appearing in a few hit movies. She seemed poised to burst out of Brevard County and hit the big time. Brian Bergeron, whom many people in Brevard County know from his work in local theater, he's now the artistic director at the Surfside Playhouse, knew Tammy and her family in the 1970s. First off, I worked with her mother. I was, I was sort of a hired gun. I gave acting lessons at her small studio, and then I facilitated some of the events, some of the beauty pageants, things along those lines. And I think one time I was even a judge for a beauty pageant. This interaction lasted about a year and a half altogether. At that time, Tammy was a young girl, 12 years old or something like that, and was a talented actress, a very precocious child, if I remember correctly. This was a long time ago. And so I know that her family struggled financially and that the pageant system was everything. I believe the pageant system was called Galaxy, and I have no idea if it's still in existence. But it was a pageantry system that, as far as I could tell, Linda was completely in charge of. It was a pageant system that involved little girls, babies, children, all the way up to mature women. Brian said that even at a young age, Tammy had potential as an actress. He recalled one performance when Tammy performed as Peter Pan, and the heartfelt scene when Peter asks the audience to clap if they believe in true and genuine magic. That belief is the only thing that can save Tinkerbell, whose light is fading. Yes, I just mentioned Tinkerbell in a podcast about murder. And I remember Tammy doing a particularly good, heartfelt job of that piece. Now, this is coming from a young 20-something-year-old guy. I didn't have the 40-somewhat years of experience that I have now, but I remember at the time being quite impressed with her talents. But there was something else, something perhaps simmering below the surface. Maybe it comes from being a beauty queen at a young age and competing with other girls. But even as a preteen, it seemed Tammy was more comfortable with members of the opposite sex. Once again, here's Brian Bergeron. I got a real sense, and we're talking a young girl here, so who knows how it really turned out in the long run, but I got a sense that she did not get along well with women and other girls, and that she was not befriended easily. Like he said earlier, 
Bergeron's working relationship with the family ended before Tammy became a teenager, and he lost contact with her. But he was aware that her star had started to rise over the next several years. One person who did know her during that period, at least on a superficial level, was former Florida Today columnist Billy Cox. Now a journalist with the Sarasota Herald Tribune, I caught up with Billy in July to ask what Tammy was like and about his thoughts on the case. Tammy was high profile in that community. Um, and in fact, uh, just a few months before she disappeared, she was on the cover of our uh, TGIF weekend magazine in a bikini. It was Easter Surf Festival, and we had her there with a stand-up surfboard. Um, so, and her mother was... I guess you could call her the consummate stage mother. I mean, she was always trying to manage Tammy's career, uh, trying to get her visibility profile up just about anywhere she could. And uh, as you may or may not know, she had several cameos in Scarface, right? the Al Pacino film. So she was on her way. Uh, I met Tammy... Um, on several occasions, and the side of Tammy that I saw was very polished, very poised, very smooth. Um, but there was something else going on behind that side that I never saw. Something else going on with Tammy? We'll explore what that might have been a little bit later. But one thing we do know Tammy didn't become a big star, there was no breakthrough moment. Instead, she just disappeared. There are a lot of rumors about what might have happened. But what we can say for sure is that Tammy Lynn Leppert went missing one month after John Crutchley moved to Florida. Okay, so now let's fast forward two years to November of 1985. By this time, homicide detective Bob Leatherow of the Brevard County Sheriff's Office was beginning to think that the Space Coast had become the hunting ground of a serial killer. They were finding bodies down here, Palm Bay and uh, down by the Harris plant. We found two out there. We didn't know who they were. The one we could identify by the Harris plant, she had a cast on. She was a prostitute from uh, Indian River County. And the other one, uh, never still haven't identified that one. That was Leatherow, who before coming to Florida had been a cop in New Jersey and had also gone through the FBI training in Quantico, Virginia. The remains being found were always discovered near utility poles and the victims' heads had been removed. Leatherow began to investigate several women in the area who had gone missing during the previous two years. My boss then was a lieutenant. He, what do you think? I said, well, you're basically, uh, what I know is uh, what we're seeing. You, you, you got a, possibly a serial killer working in the area because all the heads were gone. All the heads were gone, right, yeah. yeah. Any given time back then in 85, there was 30 serial killers working in the U.S. Wow. back then. Now they're saying in the 50s. One of the local women who went missing was Patty Volansky from Scottsmore in North Brevard County. The 29-year-old woman, who had skull tattoos on both arms, was no stranger to the streets, according to her own mother. Apparently, she had grown tired of her lifestyle and was ready to move back in with her mom and clean up her life. Her mom told newspapers back then that her daughter was, quote, kind of a street person, close quote. And on March 15, 1985... She went hitchhiking along US-1 on her way to the grocery store. Patty Volansky was picked up by a man in a strange mid-sized car. 
1982 Nissan Stanza's identifying marks had been removed or covered up with black electrical tape. The driver of the car was John Crutchley. He had bought a Nissan Stanza. First day when we made the arrest, we couldn't tell what kind of car it was. He had, he had taken it to the Nissan dealership on US, US 1 here and had all the decals taken off. The only thing he didn't take off, and you'll see pictures, uh, the hubcap had Nissan on it. He had black tape over the four. But we weren't sure what kind of car it was. Leatherow told me that by trying to make his car as nondescript as possible, Crutchley was just trying to avoid detection. Now, Patty Valansky's mother only reported her daughter missing 10 days later when Patty didn't show up to claim one of her government checks that had arrived. Valansky has never been seen or heard from since that day she got in Crutchley's car. I'll explain how we know Crutchley picked her up in just a little bit. Later that year, on November 21, 1985, a 19-year-old woman visiting from California set out from the Enchanted Lakes Mobile Home Park where her friend, who was working, lived, to a biker bar. The walk was a few miles, but other friends were waiting for her at the bar. She was wearing jeans, sandals, and a Harley-Davidson t-shirt. She walked on Malabar Road and then planned to head north into Melbourne. But just a few minutes into her walk, it began to rain. You should probably know that as a policy here at Florida Today, we do not name the victims of sexual crimes. That's why we're not using her name. So it's raining, and that's exactly when a well-dressed blonde man wearing a tie and a sport coat pulled up alongside her in a car with no identifiable markings. In a friendly voice, he said something about it not being a really great day for walking, and then he offered her a ride. The teenager got in and she noticed he wasn't wearing socks or shoes. I just have to pick up something first at home, he said, and then proceeded to drive the car to his Malabar house. She went with him. You know, he's well-dressed, tie. He looks respectable. Yeah. You know, he had long blonde hair, bleached out. And she got in the car and he was telling her he's a jewelry salesman. He said, I got to stop at my house in Malabar and pick something up. And that's when they drove down Malabar Road. She came out of Enchanted Lakes. That's where she was staying, right by the hospital, Bombay Hospital, Enchanted Lakes is there. And uh, he picked her up drove to his house, pulled around the back of the house, pool, he had five acres there. Crutchley then asked her if she'd like to come inside while he retrieves whatever it was he needed. She declined, and so a few minutes later he returned, pretending to still be looking for what he needed. He said, maybe it's in the back seat. Here's the retired homicide detective once more. Got in behind her, he had nylon ropes. Out she, around her neck, choked her out. She woke up on a center island in the kitchen, and uh, she said, I woke up, and this man was completely nude. He had a big medallion on here. Music was on. The tape recorder was going. He was taping everything, and he uh, sexually assaulted me, badly. and uh, then he started uh, drawing blood with a syringe into her arm, and she's wondering what was going on. He put some tape on her arms so she wouldn't watch. He informed her then. That's all in the report here. That he was a vampire. He drinks of the blood. That was his words. He told me that night, I drink of the blood. Uh, yeah, you heard that right. John Crutchley was draining and drinking his young victim's blood. It, along with the sexual assaults, carried on through the night. Crutchley's wife and child were in Maryland with relatives. He made the syringe with a hose on the end. And uh, the beakers, he yeah. drained her blood. He would drink the, drink the beaker, kept her prisoner, shackled her, handcuffed her, put her in a tub. She was doped up. When you lose so much blood, you die from exposure. Now, as fate would have it, two things had to happen perfectly in order for this 19-year-old woman to survive. 
Crutchley apparently had received a poor performance review at Harris and demanded a meeting with his boss. It was scheduled for the following day, Friday, November 22, 1985. So he had to leave her alone. He handcuffed her and shackled her legs and put her in the bathtub. He threatened her that his brother would kill her if she tried to escape. There was no brother, and even though she had been drained of half of her blood, yes, half of her blood, the woman knew she had no choice but to try and escape. The other thing that had to go perfectly right? Well, I'll let retired homicide agent Bob Leatherow explain. She escaped out of bathroom window. And you know what casement windows are, the old-fashioned casements? Yeah, sure. One lock was broke. Saved her life. Uh, that's how I look at it. What Leatherow was trying to say is that it was the type of window where you needed to press two releasing mechanisms on either side of the window at the same time to open it. Since her hands were handcuffed, there was no way she would be able to do that. But luckily, one of the locks was broken, and she only needed to open the other. She grabbed a small towel to cover what she could and climbed out of the window. When she gets out the window, she goes through the ravine, the drainage ditch, yeah. goes up on the dirt road. Whole road was all dirt. Malabar was all dirt then. And uh, two girls, two girls sure. pulled up, looked at her. She completely nude, bleeding from the breast. She had a towel wrapped around her a little bit. And they drove off. Luckily, the next vehicle that drove by stopped and helped. Next time on Murder on the Space Coast. And now, I don't, I'm, I'm so aware of um, what doors are locked, um, you know, how, how I'm going to get in my car when I get to my car, what bags I'm holding, um, can I defend myself? Um, I'm aware of... Uh, corners and shadows uh, where I, I didn't used to be. Um, like even now at the, in the theater, I don't let anybody go to that parking garage alone. You know, that's a really good question because, I mean, it, you're right, it did run the gamut. There was even talk of Satanism, <laughs> ritual Satanism, and uh, perhaps she had watched a blood sacrifice. This was coming, you know, primarily from her mother. And these stories just seem to have wings on them. I would just kind of sit there and listen to these, for lack of a better cliche, conspiracy theories and wonder what is fact and what is fiction here. For now, I'm news columnist John A. Torres, and you can follow me on Twitter at John Albert Torres. That's at J-O-H-N-A-L-B-E-R-T-O-R-R-E-S. And for more information on this case and web exclusives, please go to floridatoday.com. Murder on the Space Coast is written and narrated by me, John A. Torres. The producer is Rob Landers, and the editor is Mara Bellaby. Thanks for listening to Murder on the Space Coast, brought to you by Florida Today, a part of the USA Today Network. Just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. 
Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts.